This is an E-Impulse miniseries, Push Dose Pearls, with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Welcome back to E-Impulse. This is another episode of Push Dose Pearls. This is our ongoing series of brief podcasts that address the questions we all have regarding meds in the emergency department. So today we're here with Chris Adams again, and we're going to dive back into antidotes. Okay, Chris, we addressed in the last podcast about high-dose insulin and euglycemia. We talked about Narcan And now there are a ton more that we should address, but let's start with a common one, NAC, for suspected acetaminophen or Tylenol overdose. Remind me, what does NAC stand for again? That would be N-acetylcysteine. That's right. Yes, got it. Okay, we're just going to go with NAC for right now for my own tongue here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This one's been around for a while. Are there any changes or updates in our approach to acetaminophen overdose and use of NAC? There's a few. N-acetylcysteine or NAC is your gold standard for the therapy of Tylenol overdoses. In these situations, you are, are turning to NAC, PO, or IV anytime you think an ingestion is uh, likely or suspected. There is very little downside to, to the use of N-acetylcysteine. And so in general, not much has changed. I think the the big thing is that, um, especially for us here in California, the California Poison Control Center is now recommending a bit of a different approach. So for any of the pharmacists out there, there's a new two-bag approach as opposed to the original three-bag approach. What that means is that it's just a simplified version, and there doesn't seem to be any downside to this slightly different approach to giving IV and acetylcysteine. Uh, It's a big loading dose up front, followed by a continuous infusion until the actual toxicity clears. So not a big change, but certainly uh, um, something that makes a big difference in terms of um, ongoing care for orders that might need to be adjusted at different institutions. And just as a review, when should we be giving NAC? Is this something you're waiting for your LFTs and Tylenol level, or how do you decide when to initiate? So it's going back to suspected or known ingestion um, in situations where you think there is a a massive overdose. uh, In those situations, I don't think it's absolutely necessary to wait for labs to come back. However, um, getting a, a few labs at the presentation of these patients is really helpful to determine what that very important four hour mark is. If you uh, get a a four-hour level after the ingestion, it becomes very clear that there's a significant amount of drug on board, and therefore, N-acetylcysteine is going to be necessary. So it's that all-important rumac Matthew. The Tylenol nomogram is is the all-important marker for when uh, Tylenol overdoses require N-acetylcysteine. Yeah, but I'm still giving it to those patients that come in and have downed an entire bottle of Tylenol right before they got there. And that's fair. Absolutely. Other providers will wait for LFTs or an INR to judge whether or uh, whether or not NAC is necessary. I guess that's kind of the question. Is there really any downside to giving NAC? Not much, especially with IV NAC. There was a worry about cost at one point and shortages at another point. However, in terms of the use of N-acetylcysteine, the PO is pretty noxious and sometimes it can be difficult for patients to tolerate. And that's about the only downside is that it can be a little challenging for, for patients to tolerate. Beyond that, it's it's fairly safe. It's, it's mostly well tolerated, especially IV. It's, it's really a, a fairly clean antidote from my perspective. 
Yes, during my residency, oh my goodness, we were never allowed to give IV unless they were unconscious because everybody was so worried about those two components that you mentioned. And I remember all these kids just trying to take this medicine and the battle that we had with getting that down, the battle was real. IV is so much easier. (laughs) Some people really swear by using like a ginger ale to get that to be a little (laughs) bit tolerable. Honestly, any any way, anything that like makes it a little bit more tolerable is is certainly a, a benefit. Yeah, that's what we were doing, trying all kinds of different things to try to mask the taste. <laughs> okay, so speaking of kids downing medications, um, another one that we commonly see is Benadryl or diphenhydramine. And I'm not surprised because my kids actually love this medication and I wouldn't be surprised if they would drink a bottle of it. Anyway, what is what? your antidote to Benadryl and how do you dose it? So this is a a bit of a controversial topic, depending on which toxicologist you're talking to. Physostigmine is your go-to antidote for uh, this type of overdose. Uh, However, there are the potential for significant adverse effects with use of physostigmine. And so generally speaking, because the, the benefit of giving this antidote in these situations is really not very clear, because generally speaking, Benadryl overdoses are not life-threatening. Now, they certainly could be. But in a, in these type of situations, physostigmine is usually not recommended because it's not clear that it's going to provide you any benefit at all. However, there are some providers out there that feel that the the safety concerns associated with physostigmine are overblown. And, and generally speaking, that's true. However, it's difficult to know when uh, it is the right time to pull out physostigmine. It has been used and I've seen it used almost diagnostically when you really aren't sure if uh, if it is a, a pure anticholinergic toxicity. And so uh, the use of, of uh, physostigmine in those situations has been used. But if you're not really sure what the toxicity is, it's possible that you're giving a potentially harmful antidote to a patient who may not tolerate it very well. So realistically, it's hard to know when it's the right time to use physostigmine. And what's the harm with physostigmine? So there are an, a few uh, case reports from, I think, the mid-80s that really demonstrated some pretty severe adverse effects. These are situations where you have uh, tricyclic overdoses or TCA overdoses, which have a anticholinergic component. And so the use of physostigmine in, in that patient population is a little dangerous um, because you have some cardiotoxicity taking place. And these patients are already bradycardic in some situations because of sodium channel blockade. And by giving them physostigmine, you're going to make them probably even more bradycardic. And so there was a a case series that was published back then in the 80s where they saw a few different cases where a systole developed in these patients. So obviously a really scary adverse event. And it's really, (laughs) it's tainted the use of physostigmine. And and for most emergency medicine providers, it's just kind of off limits these days. And realistically, just we're not really sure where the benefit is. Yeah, I've asked so many times, is it are we there yet? Is this it? Do I get to use it now? Are we going to are we going to try it today? And I have never had anybody be like, "No, this is this is enough. This is worth." Yeah, I've never actually this. used it. Yeah, I've never used it. Uh, so we actually had a nasty rattlesnake bite in the emergency department recently. Uh, and so it kind of has me thinking a little bit about the management of rattlesnake bites and of envenomations. What's the latest with rattlesnake bite envenomation treatment? 
The big thing here is that there are two major options that are available now, and most institutions have chosen to use one versus another. So we're talking about Crofab versus Anavip. Crofab is our historical choice. So this medication has been around for a long time. Everyone's fairly comfortable using it. And probably about five to 10 years ago, five years ago, it was on everybody's formulary, right? Or it it was not on your formulary and you were transferring rattlesnake bites to an institution that had Crofab. Now, fast forward to present day and Anavip is a newer option. And their, their claim to fame roughly five years ago was that the redosing that's commonly necessary with Crofab no longer a thing with Anavip. And so they were claiming that the cost associated with administering something like Anavip was going to be significantly lower because the number of doses required for these patients was going to be a lot lower. And uh, it initially looked like it was going to be an absolute winner, a home run. And now we're seeing that there are some quite a few cases requiring repeat doses. And so it's not really clear on where the the final result will lie, whether Crofab is going to remain our go-to agent or Anavip is going to be a clear winner, or maybe both need to be on formulary. The challenge is here that what if a patient comes from another facility that got Crofab and then you have Anavip on formulary? Should we switch to the other agent or vice versa? What if you start with Anavip and want to go to Crofab? It's not really clear. The reality is both treat rattlesnake bites. You need at least one on formulary and the speed at which you get one available to your patients is really going to make a major difference. So Crofab versus Anavip doesn't make a difference to me. One is important. Whichever's fastest. Exactly. So we have a lot of people coming in with concern for a possible bite. How do you decide when you need to give Crofab or Antivip? Well, it's easy for us because we were practicing an institution. We have toxicologists immediately available. So it's a really easy you know, call to make and for someone to come evaluate the patient. As most of you likely know, there's a lot of um, dry bites out there where you're not going to have actual envenomations. You're just going to have the actual marks where the bite took place. And so the coagulopathy and the fallout associated with that bite is not actually going to be significant. In these situations, if you have major amounts of inflammation, erythema, any lab values that make it clear that there was an actual envenomation taking place, it's time to pull the trigger on Anavip. The time to reach for Anavip or Crofab is when you have those major marks associated with an envenomation. You've done the measurements and made marking, skin markings to know how large this envenomation site uh, and erythema has progressed. Uh, and once you've um, you've seen a significant progression in erythema and swelling, I think it's time to, to reach for a antivenom. Well, I think that was a really great summary of some interesting antidotes. Uh, Chris, thanks for that. That helps to refresh my knowledge of all of these things. So I'm feeling a little more prepared for my shift this afternoon. Great. See you next time.